Hey everybody, Jason here. Before we launch into the show, I received a very important safety message I have to share with you. This calls for John Lennon. My God, man, put a new battery in your smoke detector. Jeez, don't you care about your house burning down? What pops up a beer or a cold libation? Let me tell you how I wrote this little theme. I went and took a call from brother Jason and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start up with some talking and some movie clips of popcorn fighting fantasy explorations and some groundless exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the box come on, contest and of course you know it's all about games. That's a slowdown, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG. With the other Jason. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. At the top of the show, we heard Ray Otis of Plundergrounds, who does the coffee cup clip art for my show, giving John Lennon, one of our more frequent recent callers, an important safety message. Today I'm going to talk about a recent session of the Troubleshooters RPG and field listener calls about VTTs and tactical play, specifically online, but a little bit of in-person tactical play as well. So let's get into it. So recently I was able to play in a game of the Troubleshooters, and the Troubleshooters is designed to emulate the Belgian-French comics Tintin probably being the most famous in the United States. This game is distributed by Modiphius. It's a beautiful game. It's one of those games where you really want to get the hard copy of it because it's a beautiful book, great art, very nicely put together. It's a D100 or D percentile base system. What's nice is it's fairly minimal. Your characters have skills and they have the equivalent, or they have skills, they have abilities, you know, the equivalent like edges and flaws, those kind of things. But there aren't any attributes, which are fine. You really don't need attributes. You do have vitality, which is your health. You also have story points where you can modify the story slightly to get a clue, because it's mainly an investigation kind of game, or to trigger some abilities. So my character, for example, had judo, and with judo, I can spend a story point if I want a success, to automatically remove a MOOC from the board effectively, right? So, so there are things like that. Uh, all in all, the system seemed to work pretty well. I played an investigative journalist from, from France, from Paris, and the other play, there were two players in GM. The other player was playing a, I, I don't want to say elderly, but she was in her 50s, a scientist or... I, I guess an archaeologist, maybe more than anything, a cultural scientist, I guess, or cultural researcher um, of Celtic culture. Uh, archaeologist, I guess, would be the right term, or professor of archaeology kind of thing. Um, and she was based on the Isle of Man, actually. And we, we hooked up and were investigating some thefts from antique shops and some dig sites in Brittany. And, and it went pretty well. We... Ended up tracking down, you know, through various iterations. There were some um, red herrings and people that, you know, weren't who they seemed. And uh, eventually we did track the culprits down and got got the authorities on the scene and were able to win the day. Um, there, There were some hiccups, but I think that was more a new group playing a new set of rules with the GM that's been running other kinds of games and wasn't really used to running this kind of investigation investigation game. But all in all, it seemed to work pretty well. I would definitely play with, with that group again without hesitation. I do want to play the Troubleshooters some more. There are actually free scenarios online for the Troubleshooters, and there's a whole free soup, Scooby-Doo hack for the Troubleshooters online. Uh, uh, an official hack, I guess, because it's there on the, their official website where it's got stats for the whole mystery gang and, you know, updates the technology, I think, to the 70s. So where normally the game's set in the 60s. 
all in all, I do recommend The Troubleshooters. I think it's an interesting investigative game. It is that lighter-hearted kind of travelogue investigation. Um, you could do Inspector Gadget kind of thing with it. You could do... You could do espionage with it well enough, but it's not really designed to be a bloodthirsty game, although the combat can be deadly once guns are introduced. All in all, though, I, I do recommend the troubleshooters. I am looking forward to giving another shot. Maybe I can talk Carl and Amy and some of the others into playing in a game of it one of these days, um, and, and, and we can have some fun. So go check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. Before we get to the calls, I just want to mention time is running out to enter my May contest. The contest is pretty simple. Pick a Nicolas Cage movie you think would be fun to adapt to an RPG module. And then call, call in or send me a message telling me the movie that you think would be neat to turn into an RPG adventure. Why it would be neat. If you have a system in mind, tell me that too. And get that to me by May 25th. Once after May 25th is gone, I'm going to take all the entries, put all the names in a hat. I'll draw out a random name. Actually, I'll use a random number generator. And that winner will get a $20 drive-thru RPG gift certificate. And I'll work with the winner to give a $20 donation to a charity in their area, something like a food bank or children's hospital, cancer research, something, something of that nature. So get those entries in. You can leave a message on the Anchor app. You can go to the, this podcast website and leave a message there. You can send an email to nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com. Attach an audio file. I'll play it on the air make you famous. You can find me on a variety of discords. If you send an audio message, I'll play it during the award show. If you send me a text message, I'll read it during the award show. But either way, get those entries in. And now, on to the listener calls. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator screaming is coming from inside the house. Yeah, dude, awesome stuff on Immersion, man. So you asked about our in-home games and about using tokens and battle maps and minis. Yes, I am a big fan of maps and minis, which is insanely ironic when you think about it. Uh, <laughs> I, I could not I, – I don't really understand the psychology of that, really, if I wanted to break it down. Why wouldn't I prefer Theater of the Mind? That does make more sense. But it, it all depends on the game, right? I think Pathfinder benefits so much from having maps and minis. It really lets you get into the game and get into the whole world and stuff. So when I'm playing Pathfinder, yeah, we traditionally use maps and minis. But when I was running a game like uh, – Beyond the wall, we didn't really use maps and minis. Like, I got them all minis of their character because I thought that would be fun, but we didn't really like have the whole strategical battle thing set up because Beyond the Wall isn't really made like that. And you don't, it, the game doesn't really encourage it even. So, yeah, it, it all depends on the game. But, yeah, I, I, I just, I, you know, it's, here's another weird thing. I am less trusting of players' roles when they're rolling online, if they're rolling at the table, you know, not online, than when I am when we're all sitting around the table together. But why? I can't see the result of the roles either way. <laughs> so why am I less trusting of one than the other? I don't know, man. Weird stuff. Peace out. That, of course, was Joe, the Hindsightless Podcast. Yeah, Joe, I, maybe because you're assuming the other players are keeping each other honest in person with the dice rolls. Um, it, it's interesting because the other day when we were playing Boomstick, Arlen was rolling. He had built a roll 20 because he likes to use a roll 20 character sheet. Uh, he joked he was allergic to real dice. 
and the rest of us were rolling real dice. And Arlen was rolling lights out the entire game. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that Arlen was cheating. I really don't because Roll20 does weird things. And, you know, he had he, – he got like a I, – I forget what he got, but, you know. But but he had a couple of results that were close together, I think. And and he offered to share a screen and all. Like I said, I, I am not at all saying that Arlen was cheating. But it it's interesting that – you know, the one person not rolling real dice was was just rolling lights out during that session. Um, but yeah, I I don't worry about if people are cheating with their dice. To be honest, if if that's an issue, you know, that's a point where you have a discussion. And then if it's still an issue, then you stop having them in your group. But I've got a feeling if somebody cheats at dice, they're probably going to do other things. And those other things are probably going to be more egregious and they're going to be reasons to get rid of them, right? They're going to be like cheating on their inventory or doing other things like that. But in the end, I don't worry about, I'd much rather roll real dice. So I, I don't really worry if people are, you know, I, I would prefer people not cheat, <laughs> right? I'd prefer people, you know, tell us the real roles and, and deal with them. Like during the Troubleshooters game I was just talking about, I rolled horribly the entire game. I, I failed just about every check I rolled, which was fine. I You know, I don't mind that. I mean, you've played games with me enough to know. I, I, I'm not caught up into winning, you, you know. But I I don't overly worry about that. Maybe I should, but I, I just don't. And, and, you know, when you have people roll real dice, they're like, wow, yeah, I miss rolling real dice. And... You know, Carl and Amy were excited to be rolling real dice when we were playing Boomstick, and so I, I don't know. I, I, I think it plays out. Che Webster gets excited to roll real dice when he he has the chance. So I, I think it's a nice break from all the evil VTT auto rolling of dice. But we'll talk about that more, I'm sure, before the end of the show. As far as the minis and stuff, yeah, I, I definitely agree. It depends on the game. You do what's appropriate for the game. If the game is set up to do tactical battle maps, and that's important because of measurements and triggering and flanking and cover, line of sight, then you do that stuff. If it's not that important, if it's a game with zones and, you know, it's it's more hand-wavy, then you don't use them. It's, it's the same thing with VTTs. You don't have to use everything. And, and we're going to hear a great call about that from Graham from gaming from the first stage at the end of the show. But, you know, what it comes down to is use what you need for the game and don't use any more than you need. So a lot of times in games I've run that you've played in, we've used a character sheet on Roll20 and that's it. Maybe shared an image or two. But effectively, we're not using battle maps or tokens. But there are other games where battle maps and tokens are appropriate. It just depends on the system. So you use what's appropriate for that system. Um, yeah. So I think let's go on to the next call, which is from Spencer, also known as Free Thrall of Keep Off the Borderlands. Hi, Jason. Just wanted to clarify that um, I did not intend to suggest that ICP. I I I. I can't even say it. ICRPG was crunchy in any way. In fact, quite the opposite. When I use the term gamey, I'm talking about those elements that are added to the rules to maintain momentum, things that simplify the game, like having target numbers for rooms and uh, the countdown die and stuff like that, just things that, that keep the game flowing and fast-paced. Um, perhaps strategic wasn't the correct word to use, even if I could say it without stumbling over my teeth. Um, I guess that comes from the presentation of the game. If you're using maps and minis or maps and tokens in the case of Roll20, um, no one way of playing is any better than the other. I'm just trying to point out that it's a different kind of engagement having that more board gamey feel doesn't negate role play it's, you know you can quite happily switch between those methods of of play and 
Uh, it certainly wasn't a criticism of how you chose to run ICRPG. I've come away from other games uh, with that similar kind of feeling um, of, the, you know, the board gaminess maybe getting me to think more tactically. Games like Numenera, um, Shadow of the Demon Lord, some others that I'm probably not thinking of. But whatever you're choosing to run, if I've got time to join, however you want to run it, However you want to play it, I'll be happy to play in your game. Hey, Spencer, I really appreciate that last comment. And, yeah, when I was thinking ICRPG versus Call of Cthulhu, I was just thinking how Call of Cthulhu has more in-depth rules for everything, from chases to weapon damage to, you know, rules for modifiers to rolls to you name it. You know, ICRPG is really simple, plus three or minus three to the target number, very basic damage, die, breakdown, very basic skill checks. ICRPG is just much a, a simpler game than Call of Cthulhu is, you know, at its core. But I, I definitely can, can see what you're saying. And it's repeated, in fact, in the next call by Daniel, Bandits Keep, Media Empire. As far as the different mindset that one has with top-down you know, tokens and maps or minis and maps compared to theater of the mind. That's also something that's repeated throughout this episode. So I'm not going to comment on a whole lot yet because other people are going to talk about it and I'll talk about it then. But thank you so much for that call. And as I said, let's go to Daniel. So you're making an interesting comment here, a statement or going down an interesting angle talking about uh, tacticalness. Tacticalness? I, I don't think... Um, I, I guess I disagree, but again, I'm not an expert in either one of these two games, but I have played them both. I've got the rule books for both of them. Uh, I think RC, ICRPG is more of a tactical game than Call of Cthulhu by far. In fact, if I'm remembering right, when it first started, his very first stuff that he was doing with it was he was using like paper minis and setting up the ranges and, and you know, with the uh, near, close, far. That was like a big deal with him, right? The countdown timer, stuff like that that we've talked about before. That's all very tactical board gamey. And again, nothing wrong with that. It, that's it's pretty awesome actually, but Call of Cthulhu, no, not not even in the slightest. I, I almost think combat's an afterthought in Call of Cthulhu in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I don't think that you could argue that Call of Cthulhu is more tactical or as tactical as ICRPG, but I do think how you play the game does make a big difference in how it feels. As you said, you can play theater of the mind and really loose with ICRPG, and it won't feel tactical at all. In fact, I've been running, of course, OD and D with Chainmail. Which is, I mean, Chainmail is very tactical, but I don't use any kind of map or anything for most of the combat. And the way I do the troop combat is super loose. And some of my players, you know, we're playing in person that, uh, you know, have been playing Pathfinder and 5e and many other games. They, they're they making comments. They're like, oh, I love how abstract this is. This is, feels like one of the most abstract combat systems I've ever used. I really like that. When in fact, it's not actually abstract. It's just the way I'm doing it, right? Because I'm not overly worried about the tactical nature of it. So I wonder how much of that you know, tactical or not, comes down to how the GM runs the game or how the players play the game versus the rule set, if that makes sense. I mean, I don't know. If I guess if there's no rules for tactical stuff, like flanking and things, then I guess no matter what you do, it will never be tactical. But if those rules are there, you can certainly use them. Or not use them, and that will define how the game runs, right? You can take a game that's theoretically very tactical, not play it complete, completely theater of the mind, and somebody playing with you will never think it's tactical at all. And you could take a game that has no tactical things and add some house rules or however you want to do it to make it feel that way. You know, do your Call of Cthulhu combat on a board and it might feel tactical. So, yeah, I wonder how much of, and this is probably true also for immersion, the other things you're talking about, how much of that really comes down to the table and how they're playing versus the game system. You know, how, uh, how immersed you are in the game, how much you care to be immersed in the game, how tactical the game is, how much tactics you want to put into your game, often comes down to who's playing it and what they're trying to get out of it, and not so much the game system, in my opinion. Of course, some systems, as we talked about before, while you can do just about anything with any system, there's definitely systems that are, I'm air quoting here, better for tactical, right? I mean, if I took Chainmail and I used all the rules for flanking and rear attacks and you know, squad movement and morale and, you know, all these different things, charging and stuff like that. Yeah, it would be more tactical if I chose to use all those rules than a game that doesn't even have those rules. So, sure, you can look at what game rules is written and pick one based on how you think you want to play. But I don't think it's hard to take 
that out of a game or probably it's harder to put it in a game. That's I guess that's where I'm going to leave this. And I'm going to say I think it's probably harder to add a tactical element to a game that doesn't have it than it is to play a tactical game less tactical if you want to go theater of the mind. So I'd love to know what you think about that. It's funny you talk about adding tacticalness to a non-tactical game or vice versa. That's one of the things Che Webster has been wrestling with with his behind-the-screen game. You know, when, we, when I ran it with him or played in it with him, he used OSE, and one of the frustrating things for him because, you know, it's all about descriptions and explaining what you're doing and, and all that, but, of course, OSE, like BX, doesn't have hit locations or any of that. So if you describe, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, slashing at his leg, I'm slashing at his Achilles tendon or whatever, then even if you get a 20, you know, theoretically a good hit, you're, there's no game mechanic to simulate that, right? Or, you know, I'm trying to knock the weapon out of his hand. Well, you know, BX doesn't do that, right? I'm shooting the arrow. I'm going to aim at his eye. I'm going to aim at the chink in his armor. BX doesn't really do that. So, so Chase facing that. So, yeah, I would agree with you. Adding the tactical bit is harder than stripping it out. So, Daniel, I think you're right. It really does depend on the group. You can play any game anyway. I agree with that 100%. Savage Worlds can be played with minis on the map, or Savage Worlds can be played theater of the mind without a problem. The same thing with like 5e. You could do 5e either way, you know, and, and I'm sure you could do Pathfinder either way too. The Pathfinder with some of its rules definitely encourages you to use minis in a map, right? Um, as far as, or even, you know, like Hyperborea or what, whatever, any of these games, AD&D, you know, AD&D with inches for ranges and all this stuff. But, you know, most people, maybe, maybe not most, but I hazard to say probably more people play AD&D Theater of the Mind than they do with map battle maps and minis and measuring out it with rulers and inches, right? So I, I agree with you. It, it, now, but if you use like Battletech, which well, that's more of a skirmish game, effectively, right? If you take a, an actual skirmish skirmish game, I think it'd be, I think at that point you're stuck using the map. But most RPGs don't have the full skirmish rule set in there. As far as ICRPG goes, it, maybe it started that way, but really ICRPG, yeah, you've got the three ranges and anything gives you an advantage. You, you know, you roll with that plus three and... It's an easy roll, and anything that's, you, you know, giving you disadvantage effectively, you roll with a, a, a minus, you know, the target number is three higher, and if it's easy, it's three lower, right? And, and that's it for ICRPG for the most part, where Call of Cthulhu, like I was mentioned to, you know, Spencer, you know, Call of Cthulhu measures distances and actual measurements and has tons of rules for auto-fire and chases and, you, you, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I think ICRPG... RPG, you know, I, it's got a couple pages of combat rules, maybe. I'm not looking at the books tonight. I'm sorry. But I guarantee you, Call of Cthulhu probably has, you know, I, I don't know. In, in, you know, it's not like twice the number of pages of combat as ICRPG. It's like in a multiple of the pages of combat in ICRPG or in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook. Um, which, just page count doesn't mean it's more tactical, but... You know, it's got a lot more combat rules than than ICRPG does, which originally Call of Cthulhu, you know, and Call of Cthulhu in, in concept shouldn't necessarily have a ton of combat rules, but it be, it's become more and more pulpy. And I would argue 7th edition with things like Pushing Your Luck and things like that continue that pulpiness and contribute to that character survival and character characters being tough guys and heroes as opposed to to me gold professors and mind you you can push your luck in a library use role but i i kind of think call cthulhu is turning more into a pulp game than that investigative horror game and because of that mind you run correctly it doesn't matter how tough your characters are they they can still die horrible deaths right and and combat numbers don't matter if if your body's been invaded by something or if you're, you know, facing an other world horror or something like that. But, yeah, I, I guess it depends on the scenario. But I think the base game, if you 
remove scenarios and just look at the rule set in front of you, I think Call of Cthulhu is a more tactical game. But I don't know. I'd be interested to hear like Carl Rodriguez and some other folks call in and give us their opinion on that. But yeah, I, I 100% agree with you, Daniel, that some games are written with more tactical rules than others, but it comes down to how the group plays them in, in the end. And, and it always comes down to the group. And even those more tactical games can still be played with immersion and with role-playing and everything. But but I do think it takes a mind shift when you're looking down on a board with tokens or with actual miniatures and you're moving and measuring. You, you know, you're on roll 20 and you're using the the tape measure thing to measure distances and all that. I think that is a different mindset than when you're doing theater of the mind and, and role-playing. Just, just, just kind of what I think. But let's thank you so much. And Daniel has some more to say about immersion specifically, so let's go to that. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Manus Keep. Um, I guess this is going to be about the the using tokens and miniatures and stuff. I, um, I guess I want to start off by saying that I don't find immersion to be this like ultimate goal that everybody seems to think that it should be in the game. I don't, I don't think I've ever been immersed in any game. I, I don't know if you really want to use that. I mean, I'm always aware I'm sitting there playing a game. I never think I'm my character. You're not going to see me running around steam tunnels, you know, if that's what you're talking about by immersion. If it's like distracting from the game and makes it not fun, well, that could be if, you know, some of the things people are saying, you know, people take a long time to load things up, can't find things, but that could be in person or in a VTT. It's really not the VTT that's doing that uh, in my mind. More specifically, I think that uh, to answer your question, when I first started using minis in person, I did the whole, I got a giant dry erase map and I like drew hallways and had the minis move down step-by-step and did that. This was in fifth edition. And, uh, yeah, I, I moved away from that because I didn't care for it very much. I switched over to really only using them for combat, which is probably more what I think you should do. Uh, should. I mean, not that that's a word to say. But although the thing is, when somebody's like, where did the trap blow up? I mean, it's nice to know where the characters are standing in the room. So you can argue that, too. And obviously people use uh, what's called Dungeon Forge or whatever it is, all those, like, uh, 3D uh, sets to build hallways and stuff. So clearly some people do do it like that. And I think if you're playing that way, I feel like that, yeah, again, it's it becomes a little bit more board gamey, not that that's necessarily a bad thing. As far as moving tokens on a VTT, I'm not a huge fan of that, but I think I'm just not proficient in it. And I feel like, and again, it's a lot of the problems, if we go down, people are saying what they think the problem is, but me standing on the outside looking in, it sounds like the dungeon masters or game masters that were proficient with the VTT and also their system produced the most enjoyable times on the VTT, right? So <laughs> I think that's really it, right? If you're really good with the VTT and you make it so that it doesn't seem like anything different than playing without it, then it's never getting in the way. So I guess the, the advice there would be to get really good with the VTT if you want to use it or don't use it at all. I mean, I find them to be fine if you're just doing theater of the mind and rolling stuff. I mean, I've used my iPad uh, many times to just like sit outside and play in games using Roll20. It's not perfect, but it works. So I don't think that computer power and stuff is necessary as long as you're not trying to do any kind of massive things with it. And that's speaking primarily from a player's point of view. Now, if I take it from a a referee's point of view, yeah, the VTT is way more work for me than playing in person or just using Zoom. So I tend to not like to use them, uh, except for where I feel like they're going to be super useful, Uh, which is uh, like you've been talking about the character sheets. I do put maps up generally so people can see the map. I sometimes do handouts or show images, but generally I use it for the map. Part of that too is that I'm recording my, uh, like for instance, my Hyperborea campaign that's online. So like the map is nice if somebody's watching it to see it. Um, otherwise, I, I don't think the players care as much about the map. Um, and when they do, I just show it to them. So that that's easy enough to do on Zoom, uh, like you said. So, so for me, I think that I got fully engulfed in VDTs when I first learned them. I thought it would be really great to play on them all the time and just never got good at it. So for me, I would much rather just play Theater of the Mind, whether I'm on a VTT or using Zoom. Yeah, I mean, I can't talk to what other people consider immersion. I've never thought I was the character and forgot I was playing a game. I, I've never had that experience. During that recent game with Che Webster, I did feel some butterflies in my stomach when we were in combat, you, you know, so there, you know, that pucker factor went up. So that was interesting. I don't, I don't know that I've ever, it's been that 
intense before, so that that was something. And it, and I've been in games where, you know, I've left the game horror games where you know it's been, wow, that was you, you know you're still thinking about it a day or two later, you know that was messed up, and you know so so games have you know affected me like that. But I've never thought I was in the game or anything like that. I, I agree with you on that. Other people would have to call in I, and, and give their definitions of immersion. Um, but I do think as far as the I, – I think the board, when you're do, in board game mode and in theater of the mind mode, I think they're different. And I think board game mode, you're more aware it's a game and more thinking about game mechanics – than you are the, what your character is doing in the story. And maybe that's the difference is whether you're thinking about how the game works or whether you're thinking about what your character is doing. And I think that may be a difference in immersion because if you're thinking about game mechanics, you, you, you're not as concentrated on the character's experience where you, maybe that – does that make sense? And that's kind of where you're like in the zone – you know, you know, trying to think and talk. And if you talk first person, maybe you don't, and you don't have to talk first person by any means. But if you're trying to do that stuff, and then you have a five minute conversation about the rules of the game, trying to get back into that mindset might be difficult. I, I don't know. It, it's going to be different for everybody. As far as the last thing you mentioned, there's no question VTTs are a hell of a lot more work for the GM, unless you just buy. Well, I don't know. I've never bought any pre-made VTT adventure. So I don't know what the pre-made VTT adventures are like. I don't know what those map sets and all that stuff are like. I assume there's still a good amount of background work that the GM has to do, but I don't know. Um, but truth of the matter is, VTT is a hell of a lot more work on the GM than just plopping down at the table and playing a game in person. Or just throwing up Zoom or, or a conference app and running the game out of your GM notebook having to set up maps and dynamic lighting and, you know, sh sh fog of war and make tokens. and do It's a lot of work. You can spend hours and hours. And, and I just don't think the squeeze is worth it. Now, in your case, you're, you're streaming these games. You want to get viewers. You want to build your brand. Then, yes, there, there's argument to be said. You want it to be because you're competing against other people that are doing that. But playing with your home group... I mean, some people are into that, and that's cool, and some GMs really dig the experience of building those extensive things in a VTT, and that's cool. If that's the kind of lonely fun the GM likes, building that stuff in a VTT, they should definitely do it. I'm not knocking that. But if you don't enjoy doing that, then why spend the hours doing it, you know? That's just kind of my thoughts on that. I'm not saying it's wrong to build all that kind of complicated stuff in the VTT, and especially it's not wrong if you like it or if you're doing it for a commercial reason. But if you're just doing it because you think your players expect it, then it might be worth having a talk with your players. Be, hey, guys, I'm wasting two hours before each session building these maps. I just don't have the time to do that. I need to spend time with my kid. How about we just do theater of the mind or throw up a whiteboard and, and just each mark where the characters are during combat? And chances are you're not going to lose players over that if you, know, if you have a solid group. Just kind of my thoughts on that. Now, we're going to go to somebody that does a lot of really cool stuff on VTTs, and he plays a lot of cool games in person with maps and minis or pogs. He showed me some pogs that he and Amy made for a recent convention. Yes, I'm talking about Carl, the geomologist himself. So let's go to Carl of the Geomologist Presents podcast. I think it's funny how you talk about a video game experience with these VTTs. I would think more of a board game experience to me where maybe bored is the key word, and that's what kind of breaks my immersion sometimes when there are technical difficulties. Um, I'm getting the hang of Fantasy Grounds, and I think the, with that, from my point of view, it's really prep time. I mean, you really got to go in there earlier and prep it and know where everything is. So you don't break the immersion. I think the last couple times, which unfortunately you have missed, uh, I've been able to prep ahead of time and do that. I know it's coming. I've reread the sections that the characters might go through in the in the actual module, and then find what I need in the VTT while players are prepping their characters, getting on early and stuff like that. Um, but uh, 
To me, it's definitely not a video game since I still play World of Warcraft and I never have technical issues with that while I'm flying around on my um, Velociraptor thing. And I guess that's for me because video games are dynamic and moving and you're shooting things or like in the case of my demon hunter shooting laser beams from their eyes at bad creatures. And uh, I don't, guess I don't fly around in a Velociraptor, but I do have like a Vespoid, a bronze Vespoid mount and a Raptor mount and over 200 and something mounts. Um, yeah. I, anyway, to me, it's, yeah, the immersion is not broken because of the video gameness. It's just broken because of technical difficulties. But I'm trying to get better. Jason, I apologize if I make it boring for you and break your immersion. Um, in any case, I don't know. I don't know. Um, let's see. Let me, I'll get to this thought in a second about immersion and breaking. But maybe I gave a call already. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I, you know, like um, when I do my own DIY, I do prefer, if we're talking about VTTs, I, I really need to check out Foundry. I did enjoy it when I um, played Forget About It at uh, BS and GamerCon um, last time they did it. And um, it seems pretty cool. I do prefer Roll20 to Fantasy Grounds, but I feel like since I've invested in Fantasy Grounds, I got to push through it. I'm glad that, honestly, that Pathfinder is putting out some of the, some of the latest adventure paths in Roll20. It's easier to me. Um, I don't know if I'm a fan of dynamic lighting so much as Fog of War is fine because I can just, it's easier to click out. It's, it's such a, a amount of prep if you DIY your own dynamic lighting as opposed to it already existing in a module. So um, there's that. And maybe that's what it's all about. It's GM prep and player prep to make an immersive experience. Hey, Carl, good thoughts. And yeah, you're right. I shouldn't be saying video gaminess. I should be saying board gaminess. And that, that'll that feed into a later call. But you're right. It, the issue is more the switch from theater of the mind to board game mentality than to video game mentality. Um, as far as you breaking me out of my immersion or your games being the problem, that's not the case. And it's not just you. There are technical problems in like every single game. You can hear Joe over in his show on Hindsight. Let's talk about when he has technical problems running Wrath of the Righteous and how pissed off he gets as a GM knowing that the, these problems are, you know, happen during a session. And we as the players are forgiving of him just like we the players are forgiving of you, Carl, or we're forgiving a BJ or any other GM that has technical problems. But Joe really beats himself up over it. And so I, I I don't want you to think I'm talking about your games. Every single game I've played, I think, with a VTT has had some kind of technical problems. So it's not it, – it, it, this isn't a Carl problem, believe me. It's a – I think it's a VTT problem, seriously, the technical problems. But, you know, we talk about what pull – you know, the technical problems might pull you out of the game. But it's interesting because Joe oh, from Hindsight List, who we were just talking about – has a different opinion of what pulls him out of the game. So let's hear that. Yo, Jason, just listening to your latest episode 352 right now, and you're talking about how for you there's nothing worse than when the game has to stop for, you know, however long to look up some weird factoid or whatever. I can think of something for me that pulls me out of the game way harder than that. Uh, and that's spending, you know, 20 minutes debating on what to do, on coming up with a plan. And then even worse than that, even worse than that is when after you spend that much time coming up with a plan, when someone in the group then goes, oh, well, how about this other thing? And then it starts the conversation all over again. That pulls me out of the game way more than looking up like information that contributes to the game. Just weird debates on whether to go through door A or door B. Yeah, man, no thank you. But, you know, like all this stuff, it all comes down to personal taste. So anyway, good stuff. Peace out. Back to the episode. So there we go. Yeah, and that rules debates um, are with players arguing with the GM on how a, a rule works. And then, you know, after five minutes and looking up the rules in the book and everything, the GM has proven to be right normally and those kind of things. Yeah, that's that's all kind of, you know, let's do this after the game. <laughs> I, but now in Joe's example, though, 
yeah, it's not something you do after the game because it's plan- it's things you're doing in the game. And you're right, sometimes that can get really bogged down. What are we going to do? And but you know, Joe, at that point, and I know you don't, you're not a big fan of on the spot wandering monster checks. But if they're there arguing, then guess what? Game time is going while they're just the group is debating it. So that's a good time for a wandering monster, right? Just saying. I think I called about this already, but I'm re-answering this in direct answer to the question you put about what about at the table. I say for my Warhammer fantasy game, I bear it's all theater of the mind. I've barely done like a battle mat, and um, I think we played a lot of it is because we we play, I played with these players this game for a while, and we kind of know each other and probably imagine things very similar. Or if not, then enough that it works at the table. Um, we even had a big battle with over 30 mobs um, on two boats, and we'd never used a battle mat. And it was all theater of the mind, and it worked fine. Um, with other games, I think the last time I actually used like minis um, was more of um, was like in Pathfinder. And I shoot, I guess I get another call. Actually, it was with Starfinder, and I would draw maps, but I'd draw it like on a whiteboard. So I just did like a whiteboard real quick um, so the players knew kind of what was going on. And I think maybe because Starfinder slash Pathfinder, et cetera, are a bit more tactical, and it's helpful for the player because there's like a move options and things like that, and it helps uh, with for the players to visualize, you know, ranges and all that and uh, for tactical movement. But, I mean... I, it does slow things down while I draw the map, sure, but once we get going, it's fine. And, and in general, like when they're exploring, I don't need a map. It's only like if they get to a room and a, and a fight's going to ensue, right? That's kind of usually what it is. I don't draw like the whole you know, map on the table, just the tactical situation, which I, I think worked really well. Um, so, so I would say generally speaking, don't use maps, but uh, if players like the tactics and want them, sure. Carl, thank you for that. I'd ask people's experience using, you know, that use tokens and battle maps and big maps and VTTs. Do they do the same thing at home with miniatures? So Carl was talking to that. And Joe talked about that a little bit earlier as well. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So you, you, you kind of do battle maps with Starfinder, but you don't do like the general maps, right? Where in now I've played in Carl's games and I know. I've played in a number of Carl's games, like Call Cthulhu games, where we haven't done maps and minis and things and VTTs. So I know he's not like a all maps and minis guy. But, you know, let's think about it. How many games have we been in where we've used tokens and maps and m- movement on VTTs that you wouldn't normally use at the table? And I think that's what makes me think about video gameness, Right. When you're going through a dungeon and you're moving your tokens five or 25 feet at a time or whatever, you know, five squares at a time or whatever, each turn on a map, on a VTT, that feels like a a video game to me. Because, you know, like an old, and mind you, my video game history is like Atari 2600 and Commodore 64. You know, I don't play MMOs or modern video games or you know, ClecoVision or any of that fancy stuff. So the, but, you know, when you're doing maps and minis for out of combat stuff, that's why I say video gameness. But yeah, I, I think ultimately board gameness might be a better term. As my good buddy Colin from the Spike Pit Podcast says. So let's hear what he has to say, even though I've already stolen his thunder. All right, Jace, you asked about uh, miniatures and battle mats and whether people use this stuff in face-to-face games, and I can confirm that in our Curse of Strahd campaign at the moment, um, DM Ricky, he likes he likes a little bit of tactical play like that. We get out of the battle maps. We're playing the Beetle and Grimm uh, set that uh, comes with many, many maps, and it seems a, a waste not to use them. Um, and does it break the immersion? Well, I would say it's... And not not so much breaks the immersion, but the whole thing with D and D. As soon as you get into combat, that feels like a 
you're getting into almost a different game at that point. So there's all the stuff that goes on when you're, you're role playing and, and you're doing that kind of thing. And then as soon as it's like roll for initiative, it all changes. So I would say that. Take care, mate. Catch you later. So it's not take care. It's not catch you later. Sorry, Jason. I cannot deliver the trademark one minute spike pit calling. I need to expound on things. For me, D&D has got two distinct phases uh, or two distinct modes. You're either in initiative and you're, you're doing combat or you're outside of initiative and you're not. The immersion takes place potentially in both, but in combat I find it it is a lot more difficult because you're in that more gamey kind of mode. You're rolling dice, potentially looking at tables, maybe consulting more closely your character sheet, your spells, the DMs, perhaps looking at monsters. And, you know, it, it, there's a lot more of that board gamey element in the combat phase, whereas outside of combat, it's all a little bit more into the role playing. Take care and I'll catch you later for real. Colin, thank you for that. Really, that sums up my feelings as well. Uh, and Colin said a lot more eloquently than I could. As far as the show, I was going to end it on Colin's call, but I received two more calls that I think are really important. One is, or two more sets of calls. The first one is from Liren. Remember Liren? Liren has the podcast updates from the middle of nowhere. Liren is kind of, sort of, almost a neighbor. She, she lives about half an hour from, 40, half an hour, 45 minutes from me, depending, you know, half an hour as a crow flies, 45 minutes as the roads go probably, right? <laughs> but, well, it depends. Maybe not quite that. Anyway, point being, Liren is good people, and she called in with a comment after listening to this VTT episode. So I'm going to play Liren's first, and then I'm going to play a call from Graham from Game from the First Age, and it's kind of long, but he gives some really good thoughts on VTTs and a breakdown of the VTTs that are out there and, and, and some ideas on which ones to use for which, and we'll close the show out with Graham's call. But we're going to listen to Liren first. Hey, Jason, it's Liren from Updates from the Middle of Nowhere, the podcast that hasn't had an update in a really long time except for one. <laughs> um... Oh, I really appreciated your message. Um, you know, this conversation about VTTs reminds me so much of, um, you know, anytime there's a group, there's going to be people who want the group to do one thing, want the group to do another thing. They all share a fundamental agreement about the spirit of the group, hopefully, or, you know, something brings them together. But whenever you bring a bunch of individuals together, you're going to have a bunch of people who have different experiences and different desires. So, for example, people who play in horror games and laugh when they're uncomfortable. Like, uh, I think if you haven't played a lot of horror games, that's really easy to fall into. I know when I played Call of Cthulhu, I did that a couple of times just out of discomfort without even realizing it. Listening to some of the responses, I realized I can be really, uh, what's the word, maternal? I don't know, but I get kind of offended on other people's behalf sometimes because I think anytime that people are like oh well they're having wrong bad fun and they're not having what my version of good great fun um I, it always makes me cringe and I know that is not what people mean to say at all but I wonder if they are aware of the fact that's how it comes off I, I hope not um I think I've played all kinds of different games at this point. Uh, I've been to a couple things in person with Jeff lately. Um, I played even a couple LARPs, which was new for me. Um, and and I, I have to say, when I go into a game, I'm looking at everybody around me and thinking, okay, all of us, the goal here is for all of us to have fun, not just me. So it's important that I remember to incorporate their fun as well as mine. That said, I'd be lying if I said I haven't ever had an occasion where someone else's experience dampened mine. For example, at the last thing I went to, which I'm hoping to record an episode about soon, uh, I played in a tabletop game that the uh, creator had made into a LARP, and so it wasn't really polished. It was huge fun. I love the game. The game is called Ganakagak, and I know I've talked about it on my podcast ages ago, but um, 
he turned it into a LARP and the person that I ended up on a team with you, there's like three different groups that LARP together kind of just could not get his head around the fact that you played, uh, like one of the spiritual guides over certain aspects of the culture. And you also inserted certain aspects of role, like gameplay into the game period. So essentially, the three different groups build the scene, bringing together the three aspects they control. And then once the scene is built, then different members of the group that's playing play different characters. And you might not play the same character you played last scene even. And uh, he just could not get his head around that. He could not get his head around that he was managing the story and then playing some of the characters and while the characters were playing different people in the story do things like go up and say okay a new character's on the scene like they'll create npcs or whatever so it is kind of hard to get used to and the first time i did it i found it really intimidating but it's a lot of fun once you get into it and kind of can grok what you're supposed to be doing I found the differentiation between a skirmish game and a role-playing game to be really useful. I had never heard it talked about like that, and that was really awesome because uh, I think it's, that's really what the concept that I have been missing. I don't enjoy skirmish games, turns out, but I really enjoy role-playing games, so I'm definitely going to adopt that terminology. I'm sure it's been around and I just hadn't picked it up, but I found that very useful. So anyways... Uh, it's great to hear you again. I actually had a trip up and back from the farmer's market all by myself. So I thought I would squeeze in a podcast and yours was at the top of the list. So um, I just finished that part of the comments. I'm going to go listen to the political part now. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I hope you're doing well. Talk to you soon. Liren, it was great to hear from you. And thank you for those comments. I think, yeah, it's really important to remember one person's fun is not necessarily another person's fun. And it's what you and your group enjoys. There's no bad, wrong fun, provided you're not causing, you know, you're not being mean-spirited or harming somebody in your group mentally or physically or whatever. And you're not teaching through your game bad habits or bad things. You know, you're not teaching racism or, or whatever, or some kind of ism through your games, right? But... In the end, if one group likes, you know, one one style of gaming and another group likes another style of gaming, that doesn't mean one group's right and the other group's wrong. And we need to be respectful of that. And, and like you, I've played all kinds of games from super duper duper narrative games, you know, like Swords Without Masters to super duper tactical games where, where you're doing the almost skirmish games, you know, role playing games, disguised skirmish games, how much? Excuse me. So, yeah, I, I agree. We, we need to be mindful of, you know, just because we don't like it doesn't mean other people don't like it. It's okay to say, I'm not a big fan of that, but I'm glad you enjoy it, and, and I'm glad you're enjoying your game. So, as far as the political thing goes, yeah, Laren and I, um, well, you're going to hear about that next episode, because Laren's going to set me straight a little bit. And she has a message I think everybody needs to hear. So I definitely would ask everybody to tune in to the next episode, even if you're, you're not in the political thing, to, to hear her comments. But that'll be coming out on May 25th. So you're going to have to wait till May 25th for the political calls. But until then, I'm going to close the show out with this call from Graham, a gaming from the first age, because he breaks down different VTTs and talks about which VTTs are good for which styles of play. And I think it's a really useful thing because he talks about some VTTs I've never heard of before on here. So, so I think it's useful if you're inter interested in VTTs. If you're never going to touch a VTT, and he even talks about VTTs designed for theater of the mind play. So now Graham is kind of obsessed with the idea of having an online die roller. So Arlen, you're not the only one out there. Graham seems obsessed with the online die roller as well. So that, because that's a big thing he talks about in all these. Personally, I could care less about it, but I know some people like that. So, and there's nothing wrong with it. And if a group wants to roll dice online with the online roller, online die roller, I'm fine doing that. I, I 
you know, it is definitely not a game breaker for me. I, I, I don't care if somebody else rolls the dice for me, to be honest with you. I just want to play the game. And I'm happy playing the game whether I'm physically rolling dice or not. So, and if I'm not, if I'm pushing a button to roll the dice, somebody else might as well be rolling the die behind the screen. So, because ultimately it's the same difference, right? Um, so, so I'm fine either way, but in the end, but I, I think Graham has some interesting thoughts. So we're going to, I'm going to play Graham's call and then the show is just going to close out. So thank you to everybody that called in. Thank you to TJ Drennan for the wonderful music. I already thanked Ray for the artwork. Really appreciate it. And I will see everybody again on the 25th of May where we play the responses to my um, well-intentioned but poorly planned political editorial. I'll, I'll just frame it that way for now. And you can come back on the 25th. For now, I'm going to let Graham's call be the last call. We'll go to the ending theme song after that. But before that, I, Graham in the beginning of his call says that he's calling in late on the subject. And that's not necessarily true. I always try to let an episode go between before I play the calls. So, like, if you called episode if, – if I talk about something episode 350, normally I won't play any calls for episode 350 in episode 351. It will be at least episode 352 before I start putting those calls on the show. So that way there's, time, there's always time for people who can't listen right away. You know, and I'm trying to, and I'm, I know I've been releasing an episode every two days recently, and, and I'm going to do that again because I was going to have the political calls on this show, but this is already going to be a little bit over an hour, and I've got a bunch of calls about the politics, so that's going to be a separate show. But after the, after that, after the award show, I'm going to go back to twice a week, hopefully. And, and that way, so you'll basically have a whole week between the show and when I air calls about that show. So there'll be a whole week's time between there to get calls in. And you can always call in about late things. If somebody wants to call me and ask questions or give comments from episode 123, I don't even know what 123 is, but if you want to do that, then I'll happily air it and talk about it. So you, you can always call. You're never late. But as far as the discussions go, the intent is to least uh, let at least five or seven days go between the topic and when I start airing calls about the topic. Lately, it's been closer to four day, four or five days between the topic and me airing calls, but I'm going to try to extend that out a little bit more. But you are not late, Graham. So I, I just want to throw that out there so people know I do build a gap in so people have time to listen. Okay, let's go to Graham's call. I hope everybody's doing well, and I will talk to you all next time. Hey, Jason, it's Graham also known as First Age from the Gaming from the First Age podcast. I'm a little bit late, as usual. I'm always late uh, on your on responding to your uh, podcasts, VTTs. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think any bit of technology that's going to get in between you and the experience of being with people around a table playing a game is going to create um, some kind of a veil to uh, immersion. Uh, I think just a little bit. The point I want, wanted to make uh, was there is... A huge amount of variance in complexity for virtual tabletops. It's a bit of a curve. I'm personally fairly comfortable at either end of the curve. So if it's a really simple VTT, you know, arguably something around the video conference with a dice roller end, right through to, well, what's going to be complex? I suppose something like running Pathfinder second edition module on Foundry. It's got a lot of features, a lot of automation, and therefore a bit more complexity. I think it's I think it's great, but you know I can do either end, and that's fine. So I think a couple of things. One is about that um, variance in complexity, and the other is, I think it's it's important not to conflate. I'm not, I'm not suggesting you are doing this, but I think it's easy to conflate the complexity of the virtual tabletops and how they get in the way with the map and token effect and taking you away from immersion due to map and tokens. And they're sort of two different things, but they kind of kind of can come together with some of the virtual tabletops. In terms of complexity, if you look at the map and token ones, as I'll call them, or ones that, that have out of the box, as it were, support for map and tokens, there is a range still there as well. You've got your Roll20s, your Fantasy Grounds, and Foundry. They 
certainly have a fair bit of complexity built in. But if you wanted to do map and tokens and you didn't want to have complexity, there's Albert Rodeo, which absolutely is deliberately constrained in its design and it, and its and in its UI to support very simple map and token play. It doesn't have webcams and so on. You would use something like you know or something else uh, to support webcams. And that does the job really well. So if I was running Pathfinder 2nd Edition, I would use Foundry and I would use the Foundry module. I love it. I think it's great. I think it does support play. But I'm playing in a Pathfinder game right now that uses Albert Rodeo. And we've got physical... I say we've got physical sheets. I haven't, actually. I've got a Path Builder sheet, which is on another tab <laughs> on a browser. Uh, and I, uh, But we roll dice either physically or we roll dice on Albert Rodeo. Or we can even roll dice on Path Builder, which has got the character on. There's all kinds of ways of doing it. And I guess if you've got a very simple virtual tabletop, the amount of engagement with that virtual tabletop is down to the individual players. Probably true with any of them. You can engage as much or as little as you like. I think the temptation when you've got a more complex virtual tabletop is, is that you will engage with it more because it offers you more. And, and, and that can be an issue. So huge variance uh, in terms of the virtual tabletops. The other thing I would say is not, I guess, virtual tabletops themselves are evolving and not all of them are even bothered. You know, they don't care about maps and tokens. They are much more focused on different elements of play and to support online immersion. So I'll, I'll quote you two examples. Sorry, this, I'm going on a bit now. Let's look at playroll.com or roll as it's known. Roll is effectively built around a, essentially, it feels like very much like a video conferencing suite. What is at the center of that? Well, it's people, it's people and the cameras. Um, around the edges of that design are tools such as a dice roller. Um, yes, it does support map and tokens. And in fact, if you throw up an, uh, an image or a map, all the cameras immediately resolve into a nice stripe at the bottom of your screen. So there's a fluidity to the design. So it enables sharing of assets without you sort of losing sight of each other and it does it fluidly for you. It's all in a browser. You don't need to have any software. So that's quite nice. It's also got sheets built in. The sheets that, that, that provide are non-programmatic. So they're relatively straightforward to put together. We find, I, I use that for fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons game of all things. Um, so yes, we do use, I do use map and tokens. Most, most players are using physical sheets and rolling dice using the dice roller, but off their physical sheets. And that works very, very well. So you've got sort of simpler sort of video conferencing ones. You've got simpler um, map and tokens like Albert Rodeo. Another one I want to just pick out is this is not this is not designed to be a review of all the different virtual tabletops, but just to sort of demonstrate that they're all doing something very, very different is one that is new to me. And I'm starting to explore it is Alchemy RPG virtual tabletop. Um, the great thing about Alchemy is it, it it's, it's not interested in map and tokens at all. It, in fact, it, it very specifically does not support them. That's not what it's about. What it does support is what, what they want to say is theatre of the mind immersive play. And the way they do it is, is they've got a very big canvas. I think one of your calls was talking about wanting a nice big canvas. Well, this is an enormous canvas. It's an entire screen. And they'd like you to put up sort of, I guess, thematic pictures. So something that strikes a scene, you know, gives you a view of a scene, not a map necessarily, and certainly not a dungeon, but it might give you the dungeon door or something, you know, which is beautifully carved or something. And that is your image, which which says something about what you're doing. And then over the top, it provides, well, both sound. So sound is part of it. And you can do a, a variety of things with the, with, with the soundscape, but also sort of visual effects over the top, sort of motion effects over the top. So if you've got a fire, a campfire, well, the campfire actually is flickering and, and it's crackling uh, and it's there in the background. And, and they will be supporting video cameras as part of what they're doing because they want to be a one-stop shop for streaming, actually. Um, you don't have to stream your game, clearly, but the tools will be there for you to all be there and visible, integrated into the virtual tabletop. So virtual tabletops are trying to do, are trying to do very, very different things. And I think as we look at it, we should look at what the technologies are trying to do as opposed to the games and the complexities and the, perhaps the immersion-breaking qualities of some of these games with what the technologies are trying to do. From my perspective, I've only got two, two things that I think are important. One is cameras. And it's interesting. For, for me, I want to be able to see 
who I'm playing with, much as if I was round a table, I've got at least some vision about what they are. You know, I, that's kind of what I went up to do. So, so seeing people is important to me. And the other is shared dice rolls. I I like the idea that we're all waiting for the dice roll and, ah, oh, you've rolled a one. Woohoo! You know, <laughs> and, and just sharing that experience is, for me, is quite important. Most everything else depending on the type of game you're playing, is optional. If we are using maps and tokens, well, I would like a VTT to support it as seamlessly as possible. Again, the complexity can vary. So those are my two, two things that are important for me to support immersion. And, and the technology has to do that to a degree. And at the end of the day, that, that's why I'm quite happy with a, with a video conference, because fundamentally, largely, it supports that. I think Google Meet's got a plug-in, which has got a dice roller on it. So, you know, at that point, I'm probably sort of probably happy. But I do like I do like what you can do with others, the way that assets can be shared, and the way that the complexity of some of the crunchier systems can be taken away. So I, I like I like those those as well. So I think they're all good. They're all doing different things, and they are developing all the time. So that I, I think there is something for everybody. That's that's eight and a half minutes. I'll, I'll send this to you, but to be honest, I'm late and um, I've wobbled on. Bye. <laughs> Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Maybe it's your auntie. Or a joke about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I fail to shoot him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. Is a dustman and your moil is by a tipper And I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Well the zombies are arising and the world's gone to hell We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train wreck